listening to this conversation the other day between a journalist and a social theorist. And they were talking about something very esoteric. But before they started, as they started the interview, the one said to the other, look, we come from very different disciplines and we're working on very different things. But we realized in the pre-interview that we had something in common and that we, that although we grew up in different parts of the country, we grew up in the same space. And, uh, or at least I think we did. And she said, yeah, maybe I want to test it out one more time. And she said, do you know this? And then she said, I am a C, I am a CH. I am, and the guy joined in. I am a C H R I S T I A N, and I have C H R I S T in my H E A R T, and I will L I V E E T E R E N N N A O. I will L I V E E T E R N A L L Y. And then they went, and, and they were just laughing. And, and, and I was laughing because I knew the song. And Marty, I came home and I sang it for her. She was like, she knew the song. I was like, ah, oh, we all grew up in evangelical land. Um, and so did many of you. And if you don't know that song, I'm sorry for you because it was a fun song to sing while you were being indoctrinated into, into terrible ideas like original sin and, 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 and into, into the fear of, of death. If you, if you ever thought a sexual thought, um, but the songs were good. And you know who else grew up in that world? My friend, Bart Ehrman. He grew up in that world. Not only singing the same songs, but also having people call him Bart Fart and all those terrible things that I went through. And, and we have bonded not only on the way we grew up and on the name that we share, but on also kind of our gentle exits from the evangelical world and our, like, very, in very different ways, our sort of life work of trying to make sense of it and trying to make things better for, for, for other people, not by forgetting it ever happened, but, but, but by, by thinking it through. And Bart Ehrman, if, if, if you don't know him, if you haven't heard our last interview with him, like he's a big deal. He's a hugely well-respected, widely published, New York Times best-selling author and biblical scholar, not from a Christian perspective, but from a post-Christian, very much humanize me style. I mean, he and I, we don't just share a name. We share a, a lot of our, our angle on this thing. I mean, you know, Bart is as secular as the day is long, but he keeps writing about the Bible because he's convinced that the Bible keeps shaping our society and the way Christians read it and the way secular people read it. And he writes unbelievably interesting books about kind of how Jesus became God and the process by which the Bible got written and where women came in and were cut out and, and why we think the way we do about hell. And he, he's just really fascinated in how Christianity in general and the Bible in particular are shaping our world even as we speak. And uh, I felt really fortunate to get him on the show the first time. We had a cool conversation. And this time when I circled back, because so many people for that first episode with Bart Arman was one of their favorites. And when I circled back, he said, yeah, he said, I got a lot more to talk about. And we ended up talking about a lot of cool stuff. Um, Bible stuff, life stuff, how people relate to people like us who 
who are trying to educate Christians um, about the the possibility that there are people outside of their faith that might be worthwhile and also to educate secular people that there are people within the faith community that are not only nice, but that are better off being within the faith community and that like we're going to have faith communities and we need to figure out better ways of interacting with them. Uh, and I think he's also just like me in the sense of like, he's, as much as he's respectful of the Christian community, it's kind of creepy and scary for him when he sees little children being indoctrinated into it. Um, he's just, he's like in our space, he's in my space, my headspace, just in a much smarter and more educated and more calmly communicated way. And so I, I've learned a lot from Bart Ehrman over the years. And I think that you will be richly rewarded by listening to him teach me a thing or two. And that's maybe a great way to jump into it. So like without any further ado, here's me and Bart Ehrman with him teaching me a thing or two. Here we are once again. So, so how was the family stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was, um, you know, it's always hard. Um, my mom, I, I might have told you, my mom was 95, yeah. and um, she lived a long, uh, good life and did a lot of good for a lot of people. And, um, you know, and she, uh, about 20 years ago, she, she's a good Christian woman. And about 20 years ago, she's saying, I just don't know why the Lord won't take me. <laughs> Is that kind of thing. So, you know, she died. She was in, I was there. My brother was there. My sister-in-law were there in her room and she was in comfort. And um, so, you know, how good can it get? <laughs> it's, you know, if you're going to die, as we all are, yeah. uh, that's a, it's a good way to go. And so, but, you know, and we had family fly in from around the around the country and uh, for the funeral and the funeral was very nice. And uh, yeah, so but it was just it's completely emotionally draining. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> and so uh, it took me a while to kind of recover. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you for asking. Is your brother older, or younger? My brother is three years older to the day. Wow. We have the same birthday. <laughs> and he's also a uh, an expert in antiquity. He's a classicist, uh, a Latin, mainly a Latin scholar, but a Latin Greek scholar who teaches at uh, Kent State uh, University. Wow. And uh, yeah, so, <laughs> go figure. So, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're not dissimilar people. Oh, we're hugely dissimilar people. Uh, it's, it's quite astounding how different we really? are. Um, yeah, all the way from childhood up. Um, my brother is the one who deserves to be a scholar. I mean, he was like really interested in scholarly things. And he started, you know, I think he started taking Latin when he was in eighth grade and fell in love with it. And so he did Latin, then he did Greek, and then he went to, and he was like, he's all into the classics. And uh, he's always been that kind of scholar. And I snuck into scholarship through the back door. Uh, no, nobody, nobody when I was in high school would have ever thought I'd become a scholar. Oh my God. But I got, you know, I got hooked into religion. And when I had that, the book, my born again experience, I uh, I got really interested in the Bible, and to study the Bible, you got to do it in Greek. And so I learned Greek, and it turned out I was pretty good at Greek. Ha! Huh? Who would have thought? And then and then I just especially when when I was at Moody, the th thing was is religiously driven. When I was at Moody, I was just so 
passionate about knowing the Bible. I just like, I studied all the, I pulled an all nighter once a week just to study. And it's like, and you know, after a while, it's kind of like if you've got kind of a medium build, but you, you pump iron the whole time. <laughs> if you do that with your brain, eventually like, uh, you know, things happen. And so, yeah, so I snuck into scholarship through the back door and got into the ancient studies because of the Bible. My brother was just, he was the, he was he's the scholar. in there. It's so, it's he's so crazy. There. Literally, I just got done talking with this um, former pastor uh, who, is, who, who, who I'm working working with on some, some interesting stuff, but he was telling me this story about how he barely got through high school. He was struggling through college, going to some, going to Mount, you know, go, going to some like very conservative college. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and he is in a Bible study and he read, he reads Matthew, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And like some Greek scholar tells him what the, like what what it, what it means to love God with your mind, and he goes like, "Oh, well, if scholar if 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 this is about loving Jesus, uh, exactly, and, and all of a right. sudden he becomes yeah. a hardcore student and ends up going to Whoa. seminary and really getting uh, like and and now yeah. he's a he's a thinker and all the stuff, and he says, you know, in the end, that verse was the beginning of me leaving Christianity because." Up until then, I was uh, following Jesus without thinking much about it. But then, when they said yeah. you got to love Jesus with your mind, yeah, I yeah, got really yeah. into using my mind. And uh, then that 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 ultimately, like years later, sort of took him out. Yeah. Okay. But um, oh, it did take him. Yeah, out. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 oh, but, but but I guess the idea of like, you know, the idea of somebody who sneaks into scholarship because, like, oh, if if yeah. this is if this is what it takes to be a good Christian, then I'm going to be a yeah, scholar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Good. On may, may his tribe increase. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you're emotionally depleted, but but back in the saddle. I'm getting. I'm I'm recharging a bit, and um, so yeah. Just the last few days, I've been getting back into things and uh, trying to figure out how one answers all those emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, not humanly possible. I, I, I did. I did a smart thing though. I accidentally, uh, inadvertently, <laughs> deleted about four hundred of them. <laughs> and, uh, oh well, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah. I mean, like, like that. It's interesting, like because like that's just a very human experience. To you know, you you go home and you bury your mom and you hang out with your brother and. You see all these people and then like, you know, you get on a, like you get on a plane to come home yeah, and you're just yeah, in the world. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's a different, yeah, no, no. Your head is somewhere else, your, your body somewhere else, but your head is somewhere else. And the rest of your life is just in hiatus. And it's, it's like you're in limbo or something for a while and not even paying attention to anything else. And <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting experience. Yeah. And, and, and what's funny is, is that, Sometimes I feel like I, I'll have an experience like that. I've had experiences like that. And then, you know, you come back to your life. You know, you, you eventually sort of settle back into your life. And then there are some experiences that we have like that, that you, you come back, but you don't come back, the, like, you don't come back the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly... Um you know, what everyone says is right, that it it, uh, it puts things into a much different perspective, a, a broader perspective. 
And um, in this case, um, you know, my mom was a my mom was a very a very devout Christian uh, as long as she had her her memory. Um, and she was very she she had gotten very upset when I had left the faith. I mean, I was in I didn't leave the faith for many years, but I, when I was in seminary, I started realizing that my views of the Bible were not right. That that um, you know the idea that it's completely inerrant in every way and there are no mistakes. I, I just came to realize studying it diligently, it's just not true. And and she she found that very upsetting. She she wasn't theologically trained or anything, but you know for her the Bible had always been true. And and now I'm getting into critical scholarship, and so it ended up leading to very um, difficult uh, conversations between the two of us. and um, But the, the thing that I thought about a lot when she died was how we didn't allow our differences uh, in understanding something that was probably the most important thing to, to both of us, uh, that our differences in that didn't affect our personal relationship with each other. Uh, and that even though our views were irreconcilable, uh, we weren't irreconcilable, and we, in fact, had a terrific loving relationship uh, the entire time through. Uh, and um, so it did mean that at one point we had to stop talking about, uh, you know, religion, Jesus, and Christ, and salvation, and God. And we just, we talked about other things, but there are plenty of other things you can talk about. We just knew that the, each other had a, had a different view. Yeah, she... It's in my relationship with my dad. Um, we were able to to not stop talking about those things. Um, uh huh. Yeah. But we had to learn to talk about them really differently, and and I had to learn to be really careful. Um, yeah. In the way that we uh -huh. talked about them, but in a sense, it, it became like almost that we were citizens of two different countries. And I would come into his country and I was sort of like, how are things in your country? And, you know, like, <laughs> what, are, what are you learning in your country? And I, I was sort of a respectful tourist. Um, yes, 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 yes. I would do some of that with my mom. I would go to church with her yeah. and um, bite my lips. <laughs> and, uh, as, the, uh, as the preacher put up the um, the overhead projection, the, well, not overhead anymore, but I mean, it had, has a projection going on and the, the sermon outline where you have to fill in the blanks, you okay. know, and this kind of, <laughs> and I'm, I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, but I respected, I respected her views and I, um, and she, you know, she respected mine. She didn't understand mine, but she she didn't, you know, she didn't go after me or anything. Uh, I think one big difference between you and me is that um, uh, I never wrote a book with my mother <laughs> <laughs> about precisely the issue. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I'm just thinking about the poor pastor at that church. Like, you, you I mean, you were Bart Ehrman at that time, but you weren't Bart Ehrman. Like, if if you're a conservative uh -huh. pastor and Bart Ehrman is sitting there as you're doing your biblical exposition, that that would be like my the worst nightmare of a of a pastor. Yeah, I think you know I, this guy might have actually known because this was after I'd published some books and things. But my my sense was that if he did know, he thought, "Oh, this is a great opportunity." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it, it is it is amazing to me. Like sometimes the the people that will come to me as if they have a new, like, you haven't seen it. Like, when I show you this, these verses, or when I show you this yeah. argument, 
Yeah. You've never heard this. Like, I think, I, I think I'm going to turn you back around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always something you've heard a hundred oh, times God. before. <laughs> I mean, I know I get emails all the, like every day I get emails from people. Have you ever thought, you know, that they come up with something? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and, I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you ever thought? Yeah. Actually, you know, and I always sort of say to them like, yes, and preached it many times. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah. yeah, actually, I used to. Yeah. When I was an apologist, I used to say that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, when you go into that church or when we go into our families and stuff, we see the Bible shaping people's lives and we see, you know, Christianity broadly, but also especially sometimes the Bible shaping people's lives. But when, when you're just out in the world, like when you're at the shopping mall and, and you're out there, do, do you have lenses that like, do you see the way the Bible shapes our society on it? Just when you're out in the world, when you're at a gas station, do you see stuff and pick up on it? Uh, well, yeah, I do. I mean, part of it is because I live in the American South, <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a little bit different universe. When I moved here from New Jersey, it was a bit of a shock to my system, just how. But you know, I mean, it's true that the Bible shapes uh, people's lives. Although I would say that you know, part of my mission in life is to help people understand what the Bible is really teaching, as opposed to the cherry picking approach that people tend to take. Uh, where you know that I would say like the, uh, uh, an actual understanding of what the biblical text is teaching rarely affects people because they're not interested in that. They're interested in how God speaks to them through the Bible, and generally He kind of tells them what they they hear broadly in their Christian culture. And so, I mean, you know, kind of the obvious things right now are are issues like uh, uh, issues with abortion or LGBTQ, which of course, does affect everybody in the grocery store and in the gas gas station as well. But these are these uh, the views that are propagated are said to be propagated in the in the name of the Bible, and uh, it's a problematic claim. And um, so part part of what I'm interested in is precisely how how does the Bible influence uh, broader issues outside of what we would typically think of as religion on Sunday morning, but issues about social policy, for example, or politics, or, um, you know, even like I've got this book coming out in March about uh, the, the book revelation, but I, I got really interested in how, uh, American support for the nation of Israel, uh, was driven by interpreting a few verses, uh, in the Bible. And uh, it's a big issue. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't take a stand on, on, on it. I'm just saying that American evangelicals who are gung-ho for Israel often don't understand why that view came into evangelical Christianity, because there's nothing inherent about that that would make it an evangelical cause per se, but it is. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I spent a number of years working in that region on those issues after I left the faith. Mm. And, you know, mm. boy, American evangelicals are such a huge part of Middle Eastern policy for this country. Um, and it's really, it's, it well, shapes everything. It shapes a lot that happens over yeah. there. Well, I mean, far more than American Jews, obviously, because they're far more evangelicals yeah. than Jews and, and evangelicals were, they're originally, you, you would know all this, but I mean, they're originally gung ho because uh, not just because of the biblical prophecies in the Hebrew Bible about how Israel has to return, uh, but also, um, and about Israel being the chosen people, but even more because the end times can't come until the temple's rebuilt. And this is what drove, originally drove, starting oh, in the 19th God. century, it's what drove 
the evangelicals to support uh, Zion. There was Christian Zionism before there was Zionism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally. No, it, and um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. My Jewish friends who lived in Israel used to say that's, you know, they're like, we'll take all the help the American evangelicals can give us, all the money, all the farm, like all the help. Said, but like the irony is they're like, they, they just want to help us so that the temple can be restored so that Jesus can come back and, yeah. and, and maybe send us to hell for not believing in him. Yes. Yes. That's it. You know, you love Israel, but you hate the Jews. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so what, And it's still prominent among, you know, evangelical uh, Zionists today, oh, yeah. of course. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, uh, they're all going to hell, but we need to support them because, you know. So, so yeah. here's the thing I'm, I'm curious about though, like, cause what, what you just said was I'm interested in teaching people what the Bible actually teaches. And I've been around evangelicals so long that, you know, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that the, the Bible doesn't teach anything like, the, <laughs> like the Bible is, is something that you sh wrap around what what you want to say. So like, if you're into slavery, mm -hmm. I can find you verses that are like supportive of slavery. Yeah. If you want to liberate people from slavery, I can make it do that. You want to subjugate women, I can do that. Like, but I, like the Bible itself seems to me to be such a disparate, like contradictory, bizarre thing that the idea that the Bible itself has a message is very strange mm -hmm. to me. Like, do you really, is, is that, is that, do I understand you right? That you're like, like if you, t if you stripped away all the ways that people are interpreting it and using it and shaping it around their own ideologies, you think the Bible itself has a message? Um, well, you know, for, I think when I started becoming a scholar in graduate school, one of my very first realizations was that the Bible is not a unity. And it, I think this is the biggest discovery of modern scholarship of the Bible since, the, since the enlightenment, that these are 66 different books. And what's, said in one book is not what is said in another book, and they have different perspectives and different points of view. What I, what I meant by the Bible teaching something, what I meant is if somebody um, is studying one of the books, um, you know, what I was thinking about this actually with my, when, when my mom died is because, you know, she was involved in lots of Bible studies and you, I'm sure you, you went to, you've gone to a million <laughs> of these things where you, you, you know, you sit around a table and you've got a group of people and you've, you're going to, today we're going to study, you know, Isaiah 40 or something. And so somebody will read a verse and they'll say what it means for them. Yeah. You know, and then somebody else and they'll, and it'll go off and be a thing on what it means for them. And there's nothing about what Isaiah had in mind, you know, nothing about the historical context or, you know, you don't, they just don't read the Bible the way they read any other book. And what a lot of people of course do is they, they use the Bible as a kind of Ouija board um, where you kind of, um, kind of, you open it up and you close your eyes and you've got a question, right? And God's going to answer and you put your finger down and you get the answer to your question. And that doesn't seem to me to be really the way to read a book. I mean, we don't read Charles Dickens that way. You know, you don't, you don't read like non, you, and so, but, you know, so, so scholars try not to read it that way. They try to, even when I was a Christian, I thought, you know, when, when, when God inspired, I thought, I believed God inspired the Bible, but I thought that meant he inspired a book. You know, I didn't think he inspired a board game 
You know, it wasn't he, he didn't inspire a Ouija board or, uh, you know, he's. And so if you're going to treat it, if you if he inspired a book, he meant you to, for you to read it like a book. And any other book from the ancient world you read, you try to figure out who the author was, when the person lived, what his context was, why he's saying what he's saying. How you do an analysis. You go from the beginning, you go to the end, you figure out what the points are. And people just don't read the Bible that way as if like it's, it's not a book. <laughs> it is a book. No, you know, you I, I think that that's. That sort of raises a question that I've been thinking about a lot, and that is people often talk, when I was in the church, they often would talk about the authority of Scripture or the authority of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible is authoritative. And then they would interpret it. Yes. And, and so on some level, I thought like it would only, it could only be authoritative if it was clear what it says. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what I found was is that even though people were using the Bible to say one thing on the left and one thing on the right and one thing in the middle, like all over the place, all of them, what they all had in common was they would say, but the Bible is authoritative. Yeah. And that, that idea that the Bible has authority was very seldom challenged. Mm -hmm. um, in yeah. the church, like everyone's just like, yeah, of course the Bible's authoritative. And you're like, why? Well, cause it says it is. Yeah. Right. Um, right. but what yeah. I, what I'm yeah. noticing since I left the church is, is that, you know, all those people that write you emails, all those people that write me emails, they all want to talk me back into God by quoting scripture. And, 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 and what's interesting is like, they're just like, well, of course you like if the scripture says it, even you, Bart, have to take it e seriously because the Bible's authoritative. Like, what do you make of that authority thing? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, so I, you know, I I think you're you're right that it's to say it's authoritative. That would be especially helpful if it were self-interpreting, if it if it told you what it meant. But it doesn't tell you what it me means. You ha you have to do. You actually have to engage in serious work to figure out what an author living two thousand years ago might have meant by what he said at, at the time in his situation. It, it's not it just doesn't leap off the page and explain itself to. Sort of like the U.S. Constitution. Uh, oh, absolutely no. It's yeah. I'm not. It's not just the Bible. It's any book. Yeah. And so you know that's why you have constitutional experts. Uh, if you want to know what the Constitution really affirms or doesn't affirm, you don't ask your neighbor next door who's a, you know, a plumber or a lawyer or something. I mean, he might have some ideas, but you know, you ask a constitutional expert because there there are people who actually study this kind of thing, and it's, it's true with the Bible as well. But the the problem the problem with saying the Bible is authoritative, therefore you need to follow it, is that even people who say that don't follow it, and it's complete. It's easily demonstrable, and so when when for example. Somebody says that the Bible condemns same-sex relations between men and men and women with women. It condemns that. Uh, and so it's against God's law. Okay. Uh, so when somebody says that to me, I ask them, have you ever worked a job on Saturday? And they say, well, yeah, sure. So, well, that's against God's law. You know, in, in the, the Old Testament, uh, if you do that, you're supposed to be stoned to death. They say, yeah, well, that's the Old Testament. And I say, well, okay, so where is this man laying with man from? Well, it's from the Old Testament. Yes, exactly. So why are you picking one but not the other? 
know, what are your criteria for judgment that this, this applies to us and this does not apply to us? And so you can't have women preachers, but women don't have to wear head coverings in church. Uh, I don't get it. It's from the same book <laughs> of the New Testament. You're getting this from the same book of the New Testament. So the same book says women have to wear head coverings and says women should be silent. So which, what, how are you deciding? So in fact, it doesn't come down to the authority of the Bible. It comes down to people's common sense. But that means their common sense has the authority. And their common sense isn't my common sense often, and or yours, or common sense isn't, you know, it's not, it's not some kind of objective criterion for how, for for what God wants for you. So, so, I I think that that's one one of the interesting things that I'm I'm trying to figure out in my dealings with Christians, and, and you know, a lot of the people that I that I talk to who have Christian family and friends that are talking to them is that whatever interpretation that person has chosen, they have 87 Bible verses that they consider to support it and therefore make it incontrovertible because they're, you know, because of that. And, and I guess my question is like, how do you challenge that? How do you deal with a believer who's throwing Bible verses around? I think the best thing to do is not to, um, you know, not to minimize it or to, um, or to just say, well, the Bible can teach anything, you know, which is what we're inclined to do because we actually know. But what I tend to do is to take, take it seriously, but tell them, okay, let's go one verse at a time here. And, you know, somebody will throw out a verse and then I, then I suggest, okay, well, let's look at this verse and try and figure it out. What is it really saying? What's the context within which it's being said? Um, and and what does it actually what does it actually mean? Uh, what would it mean to somebody living at that time? I mean, I think most people, I think most people, if you push them, would agree to, that whoever wrote whatever book, you know, whoever whoever wrote the book of uh, of Ezekiel, you know, or whoever wrote the book of Amos, was writing for people at the time. And presumably, if God was speaking through this person, he was speaking to the people at the time. And so what would somebody in that context make of this? And how do we know? You know, how, how do we know? And so uh, when you start doing that, a lot of these verses just start falling apart. <laughs> I mean, when because they don't apply to the modern context the way people tend to think they do. Um, and so, uh, but you have to, you know, it isn't, you know, if somebody insists on just kind of piling up verses that agree with them, you know, I mean, the other option, of course, is pile up verses that disagree with them. And then, you know, but then they just say, well, those don't apply. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess what I always worry about is, is that on some level, I just want to go, why are you quoting these? Why are you quoting this book to me? Why would you think it has, like, why would you think somebody who doesn't believe in God oh, would... Right give that book any authority. Yeah. Um, and you say, well, because the book says that God is real. And you're like, look, look it's, there's, a there's a circularity there yeah. that I'm never yeah. quite sure how to respectfully challenge. Well, that's right. That's, and the problem is that it's, it's a closed system. Um, in other words, the, this, this mentality that, that brings the authority of the Bible to play is a coherent, it's a coherent system. And so it's very it's very hard to um, to explain 
to somebody who's in the system, why it doesn't make sense to somebody outside the system. Because for them, it's just logical. It just, it makes sense. And then, and so, um, and so I've never found it useful. I mean, you know, people will say, well, the Bible says it's inspired and therefore it's inspired. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, and training, and righteousness, et cetera. And so it says it's inspired, so it's inspired. And, you know, but I mean, one difference between you and me is, is that I'm a biblical scholar, and so this is what I do for a living is like stu- is study the Bible. And so when somebody quotes a verse like that to me, it's just like all sorts of red flags are going off. Like, well, that's not even when what he that says verse scripture- means. <laughs> Yeah, what when he says scripture, what is he talking about? Is he talking about his own book? <laughs> I mean, one thing, it's in a book that claims to be written by Paul, who probably who did not write that book. <laughs> so that's a problem. But apart from that problem, it's you know, to and and for somebody to say that their book is inspired, why is that evidence that it's inspired? I mean, if you talk to somebody on the street and they say, Well, I know what I'm saying is true, then you say, Oh, well, then it must be true. <laughs> because you said it is. You know, so if you say your book is inspired, why does that make it inspired? And so I guess that's an epistemological argument where you sort of go like, why do you think the Bible is inspired? Yeah. When I talk to a real apologist and I say, why do you think the Bible is inspired? They're not so naive as to just say, well, it says that in this verse. They have yes. like they have other arguments, right? Well, not none that are any better, really. I mean, what what's the argument? I mean, you know, when you see how the Bible came together, right? I mean, it's not like these books emerged two weeks after Jesus died and, you know, came down from heaven. That I mean, there were books, books like Second Peter and Revelation. Into the fourth century, 300 years later, people can't decide whether they're part of Scripture or not. So are you saying that the people all before that, before there was a canon of Scripture, didn't have a Bible or that God wasn't speaking to them? Or I mean, what are you saying exactly? And you know, when you see the accidents that were involved and the, um, the historical contingencies involved with putting the Bible together, it's just, it's kind of remarkable that you think now these 66 books are the ones that God has given us. And, you know, thankfully he gave them to us and too bad he didn't give them to the people living in the year 150. But, you know. So how much do you think, I mean, I mean, you and I both know that the average American Christian pastor um, <laughs> doesn't know very much about how the Bible got put together. And, and, and certainly average American Christian, like your mother probably didn't know a great deal about how the Bible got put together. No clue. Not a clue. No clue. No. Um, and so when you explain it, then they say, well, God was working behind the scenes and, you know, you know, and so as a historian, you can't argue with the claim that it's just the way God wanted it to be because um, th- it's really hard for people to get their mind around that, you know, that there are certain arguments that actually make sense to a historian and some don't, and they don't care. They just think, well, God was doing it. But I mean, what, if, if you claim that something happened, don't you want to have some kind of evidence that it happened? In other words, like if I say, for example, that actually Germany won the second world war, um, then, you know, if I say that you'd think you don't want me to have some reasons for saying it. Um, you know, or I say that um, Charles Dickens actually uh, did not didn't did not write Jane Eyre, uh, you know, and so somebody, well, why, you know, you, there are reasons for thinking what you think, and if the reason is simply because you think so, that's not that's not really a reason, and so if you think the Bible's inspired because you just happen to think so, that's not good enough. 
Yeah, I mean, it's almost. So, but but it's almost as if it's it, it. Like I could take somebody more. I think as I'm listening to you, I'm going. If somebody says to me, "I believe in an all-powerful being that is guiding the the, the happenings throughout the universe," I, I would probably have. I would. And I'd say, well, what's your evidence of that? I would probably be, they would have a better chance of convincing me that they had good reason to believe in in a God mm-hmm. than they would of convincing me that the 66 books of the Bible are the inerrant word of that God. Like, Yeah, that, I think that's fair That's more that. unlikely, right? Like the Bible, believing yeah. in the Bible is even more unlikely than believing in God. But for some people, they don't make those kinds of distinctions because for them, it's all kind of all the same thing. And it's because they're not they're not thinking in terms of evidence, you know. But if you think in terms of evidence, you can think of good, good arguments that for there being a divine being in the universe. I mean, how else would you explain all this? But what kind of evidence do you have for these 66 books being inspired by that God? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know what the apologists say, of course. I mean, you and I have both been apologists, but I mean, it's like there's no, if you just kind of look at arguments and you, I think the big thing, I think the thing, I guess one of the, my goals in life is to get Christians who are, I, I don't try to get people to stop being Christian at all, but I do want them to start using their heads and, you know, and to, to think about things like evidence for claims. Because they want evidence for every other plane. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I had a guy. I, I I don't know if you've ever come across my friend Anthony Magnabosco. He uh, he's almost like a street preacher in reverse. He goes to college campuses and he puts out a little booth for something he calls street epistemology. People come and say, "What do you What are you doing?" And he's like, so like well, "I just want you to like just name a deeply held belief of yours." And he's like, "I just want to ask you like why you believe it." And he just uh-huh. does epist like. But uh, how do how do we know something? That's great. And of course, yeah. a lot of the people that are going to come up, their deeply held belief is, you know, that Jesus rose from the dead or that something. And he just does what you're talking about. He's like, well, why do you believe that? And and in a sense, he'll say, I'm not trying to undermine anybody's beliefs. I'm just trying to get them to examine why they hold that yeah. belief. Great. But he great. knows if you examine why you hold a belief for which there is no evidence. Yeah, you're, you're. It's a sneak attack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but I, I, I think most people have most people in our the the universe you and I inhabit. Most people are rationalist about most things. Um, most people do think that you need science in order to have an iPhone. You know, and they think that you you that there are certain things that happen in the brain that can be examined with MRIs, or whatever. So you know, they 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 believe that there actually is empirical data to support what they are interested in generally, mm-hmm. um, including history. Um, they really they really do think that they know who won the NFL games on Sunday. Uh, you know, they think that they know what happened in the past because they've got ways of doing evidence. But when it comes to religion, those basic rules of how you know what you know seem to come to an end. Um, And people then think, well, it's just a matter of faith. But then when you say, well, if it's a matter of faith, um, how do you know that your faith is right and somebody else's is wrong? In other words, a Muslim can say it's just a matter of faith. 
or uh, a Hindu or a Mormon or a Greek Orthodox or you, suppose you're, you know, Baptist or something. So why? Well, because God has told me. <laughs> so like, there's no longer any discussion there, because there, there aren't any, the grounds for the way we live our lives normally seem to disappear all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I sometimes feel the same way about myself in the sense that I, you know, like I believe in the solar system or I believe the earth is round or I believe a lot of things that I have not personally proven that I accept from other people. Scientists say, I believe the study, you know, um, and, and so like, like I take leaps of faith all the time with, with knowledge. And, and I do sort of see the difference in the sense of, I feel like I, I, I have confidence that if I followed up, I could get, I could get the evidence. I, I don't actually have the evidence, but I, but I go with it. No, I was going to say that's, that's right. We all, we all do take things on faith, but when it comes to things like we, I mean, we take most things we believe on, on faith, yeah. but everything else um, that we take on faith, there are actually basic principles that we know apply that we, we just know that other people are applying these beyond what we're ourselves have gone. But I mean, you know, if you want to, if you want to show, you know, I, I'm not an, I'm not a cosmologist, but I believe that the universe is expanding and I believe it's expanding because I understand the second law of thermodynamics. And I, I don't need to be an expert to do it. I, all I need to do is put some milk in a cup of coffee and stir it. And it's always going to be mixed up and I'm never going to stir it long enough for it to stop being milk stirred into coffee. It's never going to separate off to milk again. And once you start seeing that, it act, you know, then you, you realize people are just extrapolating this with the data that's available. And that it's not like, it's not like theology. <laughs> no, it, and, and it, you just, I, it just all of a sudden dawned on me that I take it on faith, but the thing I take on faith is the word of a scientist and I trust that he or she is not taking it on faith. Mm -hmm. Whereas when a person mm -hmm. in, the, in the church, when I was in the church, I took it on faith that Paul, like Paul or Jesus or whoever was saying something that God, this is how God is, or this is how the universe is. I took it on faith that they were taking it on faith. Like it was mm -hmm. all, it's all in faith. It's faith all the way, <laughs> turtles all the way down. It's faith all yeah. the way down. Like there's nobody that has direct evidence of the things and nobody's claiming to have, nobody's claiming to have any other epistemology than faith. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, you know, and I think apologists often get this all mixed up because when you talk about something, you know, when an apologist is dealing with a resurrection, for example, it all goes back to, you know, Paul saw him. And that really isn't the same thing as um, saying that um, the second law of thermodynamics has never been violated right. <laughs> to our knowledge. It isn't the same thing because you can think of a hundred ways somebody might think they saw something, but you can't think of a hundred ways to take that cream out of the milk. <laughs> right. And so, you know, th there's some things that always happen and some things that are based on, oh, I accept what he said because he sure seems sincere about it. Yeah. And, um, and saying Paul saw something, you're right. Like it, it, in some sense, you're trusting Paul's eyes 
And we yeah. all know, like, I can't even trust my own eyes half the time. Like, I know. No, we all see things. You know, it happened. I, I mean, how many times has somebody miss, thought they saw something they didn't see? I mean, just in terms of seeing dead people, one out of eight of us will have, will or have had an experience of seeing a deceased loved one after, after yeah. they died. Yeah. And almost everybody's convinced they really saw them. And so, um, so there, okay, so that's one out of eight. Uh, so if you, uh, so if you say there are, um, so 8 billion people in the world, so a billion people have done that. Okay, fine. So how many people have actually been raised from the dead? One <laughs> out of, you know, however many <laughs> tens of billions of people have ever lived. So if you're just talking, I mean, when you're talking to a historian about like, yeah, what, what likely happened? Is it likely that the laws of physics were violated? It was likely that Paul kind of didn't saw something he didn't understand. Well, the other thing is, oh, no. and, the, and, the, yeah. and the other thing on that one is, is like Paul saw, Paul saw, you know, and you say like, well, I, okay, well, I trust Paul. And so Paul saw, but, but you think Paul could have got it wrong. And you say, well, the scientist yeah. says, well, I saw, um, I saw the weight of a, a, a cubic centimeter of water. And you're like, well, you, you know, you might have measured it wrong. You might have seen it wrong. Like, well, okay, I get this other scientist, and he he's going to do it. Like, we could do it right now. Like, we'll do it over and yeah, over again, exactly. as many times as you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and, and yeah, so, on right. some level, I don't have to trust that the scientists saw it until yeah. five other scientists have peer reviewed it. And then I trust it. But this is, this is all your this is all your point because when it comes to religion, it's purely on faith. You trust that Paul really did cease. You don't even you know you're not just trusting that he's not lying. You know yeah. you're you're trusting that he saw something. Well, really, as a I mean so. I mean, look, I, I am not against people who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and I'm uh, at all. And but it does seem to me that if you want to base everything on faith, that it um, that probably even if you base things on faith, you ought to have good reason, better reason for that than something else. But then, of course, if you need better reasons, then you're not basing it on faith, and they actually yeah, privilege well, facing something on faith. Like the less evidence there is, the better. Except if you're an apologist, see that's the irony, because these apologists think they can prove it, and that's what drives me nuts. <laughs> because to think, I mean, I it's a, it's a weird phenomenon that the that hardcore evangelical Christians are more children of the Enlightenment <laughs> than liberal university professors, <laughs> because they really think you can objectively prove things like. The resurrection or the creation or the I say, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, believe me, I, I live very close to the creation museum here uh, in, in uh, Kentucky. Um, uh, so I, I know those guys are out there. Now, now, here's the weird thing though. Then I go to some atheist gathering, hmm. and there are atheists who, on the other hand, don't believe that Jesus even existed. They're just as bad. <laughs> are, are, yeah, I, Rick, or, 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 or we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount. And they will say like that was those words were never like the, it never happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're not one of those. Well, no, no. I wrote a I wrote an entire book called "Did Jesus Exist," <laughs> in which I take take this view on because I just think it's kind of like politics today. You know, whichever side you're on, man, you've got some crazies to the right or left of you. <laughs> so, like, you know, you get the you and so. 
you know, I for a long time, evangelical Christians who pay attention to these things have really not liked me very well because they think that I'm attacking their their faith. And but I had no sense of what religious vitriol could be until I wrote my book arguing that Jesus really existed. The mythicists went nuts. Uh, boy, you talk about anger <laughs> and and viciousness. Uh, not everyone, of course, but uh, whew, some of them. And and so you get these two extremes. And you know, it, scholars scholars tend to try not to be extreme, but to look at evidence. Yeah. Uh, did they all exist? Did they all exist? Matter. Did Paul exist? Did Moses exist? Did they all exist? Well, that. <laughs> I don't think Moses existed, but I mean, yeah, some, you know, might have been something, but the stories about him. But when it comes to Jesus or Paul, I mean, what are you going to say? How much evidence does the person need? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of evidence there. So, um, yeah. So I, but, you know, the problem is, of course, you can disbelieve anything if you try. And there are, there are philosophers, of course, who have disbelieved everything, um, even their own existence. You know, there are, there are philosophers who doubt that they exist. So, okay, that's fine. But you have most of us think you kind of have to think somewhere in the realm of probabilities. And probabilities tend to mean that you've got reasons, and reasons ought to mean you've got some kind of evidence. So, so this book you're doing on Revelation, I mean, it's, it's so funny because like of all, the, of all the books of the Bible that are fantastic and hard to take seriously, like even when I was a Christian, I was like, I, I I remember saying like I'll study other books of the Bible and then God can explain Revelation to me when I get there. Like I I just had <laughs> no interest in it because it just seemed yeah. batshit yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. So so what's your take on Revelation in this new book? Like what are you what are you going to say to people? So I think most people uh, have your your approach to it, which th I think there are two approaches. I, I had your approach when I became an evangelical. I when I uh, when I thought ready to get go off to Moody Bible Institute, I had uh, you know I read the whole Bible, but I just couldn't bring myself to read Revelation. I thought it was just too weird, and I'm not and I don't get it. It's like and so then the week before I went, I decided, okay, God, I got to read it because it might be you know there's an entrance exam. I better learn something. So I took it. So I read it. I thought, oh my God, I have no idea what this is. So I think there are a lot of people. I think there are two groups of people. The majority of people realize it's a weird book and don't go anywhere near it. And the people who do go near it um, use it to predict what's going to happen sometime next month. Uh, and so it's used by, um, by a, a number of fundamentalists to predict our future. And so my, my, what my book is about is trying to explain what, why that's a problematic approach and it's not right. Uh, the book of Revelation is not predicting what's going to happen in the 21st century and it wasn't meant to predict what's going to happen in the 21st century. And this isn't just my idea. Scholars have known this for a long time. But lay people don't know this. Uh, and uh, and so I, I, I show why. I show why it is not predicting our future. I also show why, you know, how everybody who thinks it does predict our future has always been wrong in every single instance. And that's not an accident. And I'm going to show how thinking it's going to be that predicting our future has led to some very disastrous uh, results. Uh, personally, it's led to slaughter. It's led to uh, 
psychological, huge psychological damage. It's led, and it's led to uh, social agendas and, and foreign policy that people don't, aren't even aware. Of. And so I do all of that. That's the first half of the book. Where I start out, that was going to be the whole book. I'm sorry, it was going to be the the first half of the book was going to be just about showing, yeah, that doesn't work, and explain okay. why. But then the second, in the second half of the book, I go on to explain what it really is. Okay, about. so like, time out, like on the first half of the book, because I'm going like. When you describe it that way, I go like, it sounds like you're basically writing a book that goes like, this is why you shouldn't read the book of Revelation this way. Okay. Right. You should read the book of Revelation, but not this way. Yeah. It feels like if you're writing that way, like you're trying to dissuade people from taking the book of Revelation seriously as a, as a work of prophecy or this or that, it feels like you're writing primarily to believers. Do you feel like that's who you're writing to? Uh, partly, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not actually. So, actually, what I'm arguing is, it, it is that, but it's in another sense, it's the opposite. What I'm arguing is that they need to take the Book of Revelation seriously, <laughs> and that when you take it seriously, it is not a book predicting our future, and it was never meant to be. And so, if you read it that way, you're missing, you're misunderstanding what this author is trying to achieve, and that that's a mistake. And what is the author trying to achieve? Yeah, that's the second half of the book. And it turns out that what the author's trying to achieve is also not very pleasant. <laughs> and so uh, almost nobody knows this, but uh, you, you know the author D.H. Lawrence, who wrote all those uh, racy novels back in the yeah, early yeah. 20th century. Lady, Lady Charlie, right? Yeah, yeah, Lady Charlie's Lover, new new Netflix movie coming out on Thanks. it, and uh, uh, son, you know, so uh, yeah, so Sons and Lovers, and you know, all these yeah. books. So the Rainbow. He so um, his final book that he wrote and published was on the Book of Revelation. Almost nobody knows this, and it's he wrote he published it two weeks before he died. Uh, he had been raised a Christian in a very conservative English household, uh, you know, church, you know three times, four, five times a week, you know, don't do anything on Sabbath kind of thing. And he hated it, hated it. But he's a bright guy. And so he remembered all these Bible lessons. And at the end of his life, he really hated the book of Revelation. And man, he wrote a really interesting book on it, which takes it on. <laughs> Not like your typical prophecy book uh, where he, but, but the, his basic, his scholarship isn't any, is, you know, a hundred years ago, but the, um, his basic line, I think, is right, which is that the book of Revelation portrays a God who is angry and wrathful and out for blood, and that Christ, the book is about the wrath of the Lamb of God, which the book says it is, and that it's all about uh, Christians who are very upset that someone else wields the power and authority, but they're going to get even. So Jesus is the Lamb who is slain, who comes back for blood. Um, words like blood, vengeance, wrath, they dominate the book of Revelation, God's wrath, Jesus' wrath, against over 99% of the human population that's ever lived. Virtually everybody gets tortured to death in the lake of fire. So Jesus is uh, coming and so, back and he's pissed. He's pissed. He's really pissed. And so, yeah, he was the meek lamb to begin with, but yeah, enough of that. And so all of the disasters that hit the earth are instigated by Christ in the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I say this because, so one way to think about my book is the first half shows why fundamentalist readings about it predicting the future are wrong. The other half is showing why liberal Christian interpretations of the book, which I used to hold myself, even when I wasn't a liberal Christian, but, but even when I, just up to five years ago, 
I, I believed that the book of Revelation is a book of hope, that God is going to make right everything that's wrong, and uh, that uh, evil will not triumph, but good will triumph, and God will have the last word. I, I taught it that way for years and years and years, but I realized that it's actually that's not true at all. The word hope never occurs in the book of Revelation. The word love, God is never said to love anyone in the book of Revelation. It's all about wrath and vengeance, revenge, um, torture, torment. It's like, oh my God, this is not a happy picture. So what I end, when I end my, just finish with this, what I end my book on is asking, does the book of Revelation embrace the gospel of Jesus? And I argue that in fact, this author does not share Jesus' view of God or the world or humans. I, I, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself. And, and like, it seems like a much more sensible reading. Like when I think about the verses that I know and all that stuff, like, cause it, you never see any love in the book of revelation, you know, like, so you're right. The, we, we liberal Christians back when we were liberal Christians, we, we were, we were pumping that in there again, bending the, ver, bending the, bending the scriptures to say what we wanted to like to, to make, yeah. to portray a God yeah. that we wanted to make. And I, you know, I always yeah. say to people like the last God I believed in before I left Christianity was perfect. I loved that guy. Uh -huh. He agreed with me yeah. on everything. Um, you know, the, like you, you end up making God in your own image and then, yeah. you know, but, but like, but, I, but like, so that's interesting. The revelation stuff, but I, I think I might, I've tried to understand what you do for a long time and not really grasp it, <laughs> but it sounds like in a sense, what you're saying is like, look, here's this book. These people say it says this thing. Like, I used to say it said this thing. But just read the book. It says this. And it, it, a little bit like if, if everybody was reading The Great Gatsby and saying, you know, The Great Gatsby is really about immigration. Mm -hmm. And right. it's about why immigration is important. And they were like pulling, pulling verses and bending it and stuff like that. And then somebody else would say, no, no, no. The Great Gatsby is really about monetary policy. And you're like, no, like actually, if you read The Great Gatsby, The Great Gatsby is about, you know, ambition and striving and class in America. And they're like, and you're like, no, no, that's what it's really about. Like if you read it, it's very clear. You know, it sounds like that's what you're doing with the Bible or, or with, in this case, Revelation is you're saying like, look, they say it's about this. These other people say it's about this. But like if you really scholarly look at the book, what the author is actually trying to write about is this. Uh, that is right. And I'll tell you, part of my passion for doing that is that even though I'm not a Christian, I do think that Jesus promoted a view of human relations that is one that I, I try to emulate, uh, where you aren't concerned principally about um, uh, your yourself, uh, but you're concerned about helping other people. You, you mean... And, do you mean Jesus the person, or do you mean Jesus yeah, the character? The real Jesus. The real Jesus. And, as you find him, as, as, that, that you can reconstruct from the Gospels. So you, th you know, like, you think you can take those Gospels, and if you study them, like, and you would know, you study them carefully enough, you can get a unified vision of a, of a, of a historical person. Like, you're like, yeah. I can get, I can go back through the scriptures, I can get to a, a person, have some sense of what that person was about. Yeah. And you like right. what that person who you think really existed was about. 
I like some things. I think one of the things he was about was was kind of like the book of Revelation to the extent that he thought that the world was going to end in his generation and that God was going to destroy all the, all the evil in the world. So uh, he had an apocalyptic vision. It was, it was very different in, in, very, in very important ways from the book of Revelation, but he certainly had that apocalyptic vision, and I think that was just wrong. I mean, that isn't the best way to look at the world. But his, his, but the, his, his ethic of love, you're like, yes, I, I agree with that. The ethics, the ethics that came out of that uh, were that you know, you're, not, you're, not, you're supposed to help those who are in need um, so, but why is his the book, but like like your your mother bad example? But like like your mother, my mother, like I know a lot of people that have an ethic of love. Yes, yes. So, so why is his? So this why is, is my, why why do you have to go back through all that process to get to yeah. this one guy? Like, did he articulate it so yeah. well that it's so important? Because yeah. like, why him? Wh- who cares? Okay. There, uh, yeah, there actually is a reason, and uh, it's what my next book is on that I'm working on now. Uh, what I'm working on now is a book on how Christianity transformed the ethical discourse of antiquity. That's how I explained it to my scholar friends, how Christianity transformed the ethical discourse of antiquity. And so here, here is how I explain it, kind of more on the ground. Um, I've been reading a lot of Greek and Roman philosophy over the last couple of years, um, and Greek and Roman philosophy in the period of Christianity was really all about ethics, um, just about all about, about how, how to be an ethical person. The idea that if you have resources, uh, that you should give them to somebody who needs them was virtually unheard of in the Greek and Roman worlds. The idea of charity didn't, didn't exist. They didn't have charities. Christ, Christians invented the idea they Christians got it from Jews. It's in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is the God of the poor. Uh, but what happens is the Christians come out of Judaism, they take over the world, and this ethic then becomes the standard ethic in the in the West that you need to help those who are in need, and that you will be rewarded if you give give of yourself and your resources to others. Christ, Christians invented hospitals and orphanages. And uh, governmental assistance to the poor. Christians invented all that. And so it all goes back to this teaching of love that Jesus got from the Old Testament. So why am I in favor of going back to Jesus? Because that's where this ethic that your mother and my mother had and that people, my my next door neighbor has, even though she's got nothing to do with religion. It's because we've inherited through the Western tradition, and it goes back to Jesus. Oh, my father would Who, love you. Of course, you. got it from the Old Testament. My father would love you because he's he's always like, you know, you, you may say you don't believe in God, but you're 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 running on the fumes of Christianity, like like all your you know, all your ethics, all these things that you care about, they actually are rooted in Jesus. Well, I you know I think historic. I'm a historian. I mean, I think historically it's true. I mean, it's. I mean, of course, it's rooted more in Amos and Isaiah. I mean, these are the ones who started out by attacking Israelites for uh, exploiting the poor. But this is this is another thing that just drives me nuts: is that Christians today, most Christians I know, um, you know, they don't they don't give a damn about governmental programs to help the poor. They think they're a huge mistake, and and they don't, you know, they, you know. 
it's just like wealth is celebrated in Christian circles. The prosperity gospel, man, you talk about something that's against what Jesus taught. That's the polar opposite of what he taught. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I mean, I know uh, that's what I, I mean. That was my whole shtick back when I was in Christianity. So, like, mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that. Here's what I'm freaking out about: is 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 that as a secular humanist, one of the things that I sort of try to promote is the idea that religion didn't create morality, but rather morality emerged out of tribal living, out of, you know, know, bonobos have, 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 have a codes, elephants have codes, that morality emerges naturally when, 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 when any kind of group, group living emerges. And that religions are created to codify that morality and 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 sort of make it easier to inculcate into the young people and and translate. And so, so what I've always thought is that love, an ethic of love, emerges at some point in every tribal culture. Like at some point, people figure out, like you know, we need to love each other or we need to forgive each other. Like you can't you can't keep a tribe together unless we have a way of resolving conflict. So. So when you say, oh, no, 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 Bart, like a society can emerge and, 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 le- and live for a long time without any ethic of love, and then like Jesus can show up and articulate this ethic, or the Christians can take over, and then it becomes part of a society, that's hard for me because what, what I want to believe is that love is such a baked into the fabric of the human experience that it will emerge anywhere and everywhere if you if you just leave it alone right so uh, actually that's not what i'm saying no no that's not what you're saying <laughs> no no i'm not saying i'm not saying no i'm not disagreeing oh, with okay, you actually okay. i'm agreeing but, but let me explain so i'm not saying that jesus invented love <laughs> i'm not saying that so i've been lately for the last few years i've been reading a lot of evolutionary psychology and i completely agree with you um uh, uh we would not survive as a as a race we wouldn't survive as a species if we weren't uh if we weren't helping each other. But the way it works in terms of, uh, of evolution is that the, um, the species within, within, within the humanids, those who help, those who do things that propagate their own genes are the ones who propagate the most. Right. They're the, the, those who do certain things, like for example, in a, a hunter society, um, if you've got a hunter society and you've got, suppose you've got a man in a hunter society who kills the animal and then hogs it all and doesn't give it to anybody else. Okay, his family starves. So his genes don't reproduce because he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't, his family doesn't survive. Yeah. But the guy who uh, shares it with his family, his genes survive in his kids. And if his kids have some of it, have half his, each of his children have half of his genes, if they get that gene, they share. So the ones who share with the family are the ones who propagate. And so sharing resources is just written into our DNA uh, because of who we are and where we came from. I completely agree with that. What I'm saying is different. And so I think it is. Uh, in every culture in the world, parents love their children. 
and protect their children. If they're, if a parent in any culture in the world sees a burning house and they've got their child in there and a stranger in there, they're going after their child. And it's because in our DNA, that's the kind of DNA we have is the kind that did that sort of thing. Yeah. Because then the other kinds died out because their kids burned in fires. The other kinds died out. So I completely agree with that. What's different, what, I, what I'm arguing is not that love is an invention or that people were unethical. As I've been saying, Greek and Romans were very ethical. They were just as ethical. But their ethics weren't part of their religion. Religion, the idea that religion is ethical kind of begins with, with Israel, but it really begins with Christianity because in Christianity, you're not just taking care of the tribe. You're not just taking care of your family. You've got some hungry guy across town who's starving to death and you give him money so that he will be able to eat. That is not in our DNA. Um, and it never, it, it was not around until, um, until Christianity, even within Judaism, love your neighbor as yourself meant your fellow Israelite. You weren't supposed to love the guy and the, the woman in Canaan. You were supposed to kill the Canaanites, right? You're supposed to slaughter anyone else, not an Israelite. But Jesus, and probably other Jews, but Jesus emphasized, no, uh, you know, the, the sheep and the goats, it's all people taking care of those who don't, don't even know who they are. Or, you know, or you, or the good Samaritan, or the, you know, it's helping the one in need rather than just, you know, leaving your inheritance to your kids. And I think that that's commendable. I think that's a better way to live. It's funny because I, 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 I think I do too. Although the farther we go along the path, the more I wonder if all that charitable stuff ends up coming back to bite you as a species. And, 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 and there, there may be some issues with it. Um, yeah, uh, no, no, absolutely. But you know, when, when you have a, when you have a, um, you have people who are freezing in Ukraine and you have people who are starving in Ethiopia, you know, I think, because of our Christian upbringing, we think, okay, I'm going to give money to uh, Doctors Without Borders. I'm going to give money to CARE. I'm going to give money. I mean, we, and I think that that's a good thing. Yeah. And what's um, interesting is that I think that like, my, I, I don't think, what I hope, because I don't know, but I hope that if you just keep going down the evolutionary path and you get to a world of global climate change and, and global economies and stuff, that eventually people go, oh, that idea actually is in my best, the best interest of my family and tribe after all. And so yeah. in a sense, that Christian ideal of charity was a precursor, like was an intuition that later the data proves is in the best interest of my, gene, my DNA going forward. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, you could argue what I thought you were going to argue earlier, which is if you follow that too far, you're going to be screwed because uh, <laughs> yeah, if if you allow too many people to survive in about 300 years, we're not, it's going to be massive suffering throughout the world or, as a result. Or that if you keep helping people that are not in your tribe and are living in living lifestyles that are not self-sustaining – that you actually are weakening the gene pool and you're actually, you know, and, I, and I, I'm like, oh no, he's a eugenicist. And like, don't, 
please save your emails, people. But like, but, but <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, but like, yeah. I sometimes when I see the way our society is moving, sometimes I wonder, ooh, I, I wonder if in a welfare state you could get to a place where then other tribes that don't practice that form of extended charity would actually become you know, stronger like a Chinese society that would ultimately outstrip a welfare state society because it isn't bound by those same kinds of moral imperatives. Yeah. Well, I know, but you know, I know, and I, I know, but the problem is if you take that logic down its line, it does lead to all sorts of a cold place. Uh, very, yeah. very serious problems. I mean, it was, you know, you you could argue for the Aryan state, for example, and that's why I keep you know, I keep leaning towards yeah. maybe that other more more benign theory that says it turns out that what Jesus was teaching, yeah, actually, when you live in a global society with with very few, with, with limited resources, that's actually a tribal behavior writ large. Like that's that's in yeah, all yeah. of our best interest not to let yeah, too yeah. many people in Somalia not to let people in Somalia starve to death, not to let that society sink into you know, a, 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 a chaos. And so it's because it, that wrecks our environment. They burn a bunch of cart stuff that they shouldn't burn. Like, and, and you get to the place where you think, Oh, it turns out that caring about the welfare of all mankind is actually adaptive. Yes. Well, that is, I mean, that, so on the, on the meta level, that is, abs that is, that is my view on the micro level. Um, my view is that these issues are so imponderable, ultimately. Uh, so we don't know what it'll be like in 300 years if we go one way or the other. But they're so imponderable that all I can do is decide how I want to live. Yeah. And um, I don't want to live a life that is isolationist and just um, greedy and bringing it all in and concerned only about those around me. I think in, I think in isolation, on the national level, I think an isolationist policy is going to completely screw this country. Yeah, and that's why I uh, cherry pick my the, the, the scientific studies I read the same way Christians <laughs> cherry pick the uh, Bible verses that they read. Because like I have a pre-existing moral dis code uh -huh. that I want to support with scientific data. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding. Okay. I'm not kidding. Like. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We swap articles. We send stuff around. Like, look, look, look yeah. here's evidence that we're right. And it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's the same That's thing right. in, in, in a different form. It kind of is. I know it is. And it's, you know, I mean, look, it's, diff it's difficult to live in a pluralistic big world <laughs> in the, the way we do. But you do have to kind of, you know, I think at the end, um, you know, apart from, apart from kind of major uh, shifts in population, um, major uh, problems of starvation throughout the world, the, the problems of that happening in countries that have nuclear weapons. I mean, apart from all of that, you still have to do, decide what to do with your time and money. You know, do you, do you focus just on uh, pleasure for yourself or do you commit yourself to, I'm not saying that everybody, you know, look, I, I do not, I, I have no inclination to follow Jesus' teachings of selling everything I have and giving to the poor. I'm just not going to. But I do think that I can devote some of my resources and some yeah, of my sure. time and efforts to help those in need. And whether that in the in a thousand years that ends up screwing the human race or not, I I can't control that. I can only control how I want to live. And the fact that that idea is in the culture and in the zeitgeist, you go like, that's why it's worthwhile to go back and study like 
go through the gospels and try to find who the real Jesus was because you're like, he, he may not have been the best guy at communicating that, but he's the guy who went viral. And yeah. so, I mean, historically, I would, so what I would, historically, it's really important because that idea entering into society, Western society, when it did, you're like, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. It's not why I try to reconstruct the historical Jesus. It just happens to be that's what I end up with. I mean, you know, when I most of my time on the historical Jesus has been devoted to showing that that the Gospels don't accurately record what he said and did. And so I have a kind of a fairly skeptical view of the whole thing. And, and I didn't, you know, but, but I think the reality is that his, his apocalyptic message, which I think cannot have been, was not right. It wasn't right. But it generated an ethic that I think is one of the things out of the Bible that we, that we really still can embrace. And so, so my scholarship isn't, you know, I've, I've never written a book trying to emphasize that of all the books I've written, but I, but in this next book, it is what I'm going to emphasize is that, you know, this actually, uh, this is something for us to think about since the, the most striking thing is that most Christians don't think about that. No. <laughs> and it's the key message. They think about things that Jesus never talks about. Jesus never mentions abortion, <laughs> but you know, that's all they want to talk about. But how about like, you know, giving to those in need? And you know, what about the Bible says about immigrants, by the way, the Bible says a lot about immigrants and yeah, we're going to ignore that. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting is one of the things that I do a lot these days is I, I end up sort of counseling or coaching people that have left the faith. People will reach out to me. A lot of times people who've heard, who listen to this podcast will reach out and say like, Hey, I'm working through some stuff with my family or, or I'm trying to find meaning on the other side of faith. And I end up coaching them, you know, like one-on-one -on -one via Skype. Mm -hmm. And I have a little set of questions I tend to send them before the first meeting because I'm like, I don't want to waste time asking basic stuff. And and so a lot of times I say, give me a few sentences about, you know, what were the key Christian influences on you growing up? What are the what are the most humanizing influences on you since you left the faith? And kind of tell me how that deconversion came about. Um and uh it's it, you you would be shocked by how often your name appears in that list. Really? Yeah, as, as, and, 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 and happily, Bart, sometimes it appears as like, this was one of the major forces reading Bart Ehrman was one of the major things that caused me to ultimately leave the faith. But the other thing is sometimes people are like, what's the most humanizing thing force? Like what's something? And they'll be like, well, actually Bart Ehrman has given me a lot of hope. Like, you know, like sometimes you're part of their reconstruction and sometimes you're part of their deconstruction. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're emerging humanism. You're in there. And sometimes because of the way that you deal with Christians and sometimes, you know, the way you deal with Christianity, they're like, that's, that's kind of what took me out of the game. Um, and I wonder like, do you, do you have any sense of that in your own life? Like how many people of faith discover and read your work and, it is a big part of their, their, their leaving the faith. Do you, do you have any sense of that? Um, not a, not a great sense. I mean, I, I get, you know, people send me emails occasionally, uh, you know, and, and, and thank me for it. And, um, 
and I get um, I, I get emails from other people who are very upset with me <laughs> because I'm destroying people's faith. Yeah. And I, um, you know, and the, and the thing is, it's not. I mean, may, I guess for me, it's it's not why I do what I do, and I don't I don't try to convert or deconvert anybody per se. I do try to deconvert fundamentalists from their fundamentalist understanding of Christianity because I think it's harmful. I think that it, it does damage to hu- to hu- other people. And so I'm all for deconverting anybody away from fundamentalism. But I have zero interest in turning people away from Christianity. And I, you know, when people write these these letters, sometimes I'll get a letter from somebody saying, you know, you're, you're, why are you out there trying to destroy the faith of your students at Chapel Hill? I say, well, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. I tell my students, if they're Christian, I want them to, to be thinking Christians. I don't want them to stop being Christians. And, you know, my, uh, it, it sounds kind of like a cliche, I know, but, you know, some of my best friends are Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, my, my wife is a Christian. My, and she's, a, she's very theologically interested, not in an evangelical way at all. Mm-hmm. She's very sophisticated. Um, she's a professor as well. My, my, my two closest friends here in Chapel Hill are both active Presbyterian ministers. Uh, we get together every week and it's like, I, I have no interest in making any of the, anyone a non-Christian. I'm interested in people thinking about their faith and thinking about why they think what they think. And, and especially when it comes to the Bible, because that's my area of expertise. And so many people seem to think, that if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't be a Christian. That's ridiculous. I mean, for the what they mean by that is an idea of the Bible that was generated in the 19th century. <laughs> for 1900 years, there were people without that view, and so you can't say that these people were not Christian. And uh, you know, the, it's just it's one of these cases where fundamentalist Christianity has convinced not only themselves, but the rest of the world that Christianity is the Bible. And it just, it's wrong. And, and, it's just wrong. and that so, Christianity yeah. is, I know this will sound funny, but like they've convinced the rest of the world and themselves that Christianity is biblically based. Yeah. And, and, and I know. I, and what and I not sense, just their, not just Christian, but their Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and what I sense you're saying is, is like, it is possible to be a Christian on a basis other than standing on the word of God. It's like, for, this is, first of all, I mean, of course, the Protestants, starting with Martin Luther, are the ones who started insisting on sola scriptura, the, the only scripture. And the reason Luther did that is because nobody else bought it. <laughs> in other words, the entire world of Christianity for many, many, many centuries had not thought that. And so that's an innovation. But then, uh, you know, Luther got sort of put on steroids in the 19th century with English evangelicalism that um, started developing uh, these other ideas. What, what ends up happening is with the development of science, and we were talking about evolution earlier, with with Darwin and with the geologists who were realizing the world's not 6,000 years old, and the sciences, then the the uh, Christians had, to, conservative Christians had to double down on the Bible, and they invented the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, that's a modern development. But it's been so successful that people think that if you believe the Bible has a mistake in it, you can't be a Christian. Just complete nonsense, complete nonsense. And so I don't, you know, so whether somebody believes in Christ or not and how they believe in Christ is not, 
my concern. Well, my, it, my well, ultimate it, concern. Well, it is your concern when it's your wife, when it's your two best friends. Like you're interested. Well, it's not my concern to change no, no, them. But you're interested. And so Oh yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And and, oh, and no. you're interested. And the other thing is like, and obviously like you're like, I couldn't be friends with them if they I couldn't be this close to them if they as close as I am and as and as comfortable as I am, if they based it on an a a, a a way of thinking that I know to be completely erroneous. Okay. Yeah. So 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 when you're when you're friends with somebody who's a Christian who isn't resting it on the inerrancy or the authority of scripture, what is the like of the Christians that you're the most comfortable with, if you will, what it, what are they basing it on? Like why have they embraced Christianity if they don't think the Bible is true? Well, you know, yeah. So I mean I get asked this question a lot. I've never understood the question really, because I mean there have been billions of Christians in the world throughout history, and very few of them have based their faith on the Bible. What have they based it, it seems on? W- <laughs> See, even just I know, even, even me. The question like, I, I grew me. up evangelical. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I know that's it. It's like it's such a weird thing in our culture that that's what we naturally think, and it's like, whoa, that is just such a weird thing historically. It is a why the Bible. You and I are it's, both agreed people, on like that. It's that the yeah, evangelical yeah, yeah. thing is bizarre. I bought it. It's it was bizarre. bizarre when I bought it. It's bizarre when I left yeah. it. It's still bizarre. It's still bizarre. The question is, what's so the non-bizarre in, way of being a Christian? Somebody tells you that Jesus was raised from the dead, and you believe them. That's why we, when, when I was in high school uh, and I had my born-again experience, there was a Youth for Christ leader uh, named Bruce who convinced me that Jesus had been raised from the dead and I had to ask him into my heart and accept him as my personal Savior. I did so because Bruce told me I had to. And so, and I believed him. And I felt kind of a surge at the time mm-hmm. and I, I felt born again and I, uh, and I had a religious experience. Most people are either raised Christian or something about them turns them to Christianity. Very rarely does somebody become a Christian because they 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 read something in the Bible. Reading a Gideon Bible in a hotel room after they've had sex with a prostitute. Yeah, no, it just doesn't happen. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, another analogy is the is Mormonism, Um because this is sort of, this might be helpful now because it's outside of people's evangelical experience. But you would think that Mormons mainly convert people by not two guys knocking on their doors. That almost never no, never about, converts no, anybody. That's about something else. What happens is you've got this family next door that they've got these this lovely family and they're so unified and they're so happy and they, you know, they've got the same struggles you have, but they have something that you're looking for and you just, and they invite you to church and they go to their church. This is Mormon church. And then you realize, you know, I'd like to be part of this community. Yeah. It's not because you believe in the book of Mormon, <laughs> you know, you never read the book of Mormon. And so the Bible's like that. It's not the Bible. Obviously it's at the foundation of the Christian faith. It's hugely important for the Christian faith, but you don't have to accept a modern fundamentalist or evangelical view of the Bible to be a Christian. You, know, ir- you never have. Ironically, Bart, my sense is that if that young life guy had told you that you needed to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and you believed him and you had this experience and you felt something and it kind of confirmed, wow, this is, this is happening. And if they'd have left it there, you might still be a Christian, 
but it sounds like what happened is is that you the, the, some somewhere along the line it got married to the Bible in your mind, and then you saw that the Bible wasn't what it what they were claiming it was, and you're like, oh, this Bible, and you know, but like I wonder if they'd have left you alone with just the idea, you know, like if they hadn't mucked it up with all that biblical inerrancy stuff and sent you off to Moody. Yeah. You know, maybe you'd be where your wife yeah, but, is. Well, that's a lot, a lot of people have said to me, including uh, a lot of liberal Christians uh, say, look, you know, the, the reason you left the faith is because you're a fundamentalist. If you just kind of seen it our way, you wouldn't have kind of gone off. Yeah. And I, I get that, but I, uh, I, I, ha I always vehemently insist that that's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is because I did not leave Christianity because of the problems of the Bible. Uh, everything I think now about the Bible, I thought when I was a liberal Christian for 15 years, I was in the, um, you know, I, here in Chapel in Chapel Hill, I went to the Chapel of the Cross uh, when I started teaching at, at UNC Chapel Hill. And I went every week and I taught adult Sunday school and I participated. I mean, I was a believer, yeah. but I was, I was a liberal believer. Right. Uh, I didn't believe the Bible was inerrant. What led me away from the faith wasn't related to any of that. What led me away from the faith was uh, was the problem of trying to explain how there can be a good and powerful God in the world, given the amount of suffering around us. And that I just got to a, you know, I, I had, um, I, of course, you know, I, I really hate saying that in public because I always get all these emails then from people explaining to me why they're suffering. I got yeah. three this week explaining why they're suffering. And it's one of those things like you were saying earlier, you know, well, have you thought about this? You know, maybe we have free will. <laughs> oh God, no, I never thought about this. I never thought oh, about it. You, you know, you're right. I'll become a Christian. You know, it's not, you know, I thought about it. I, I, I taught a class on it, uh, an undergraduate class on the problem of suffering in the Bible. And mm -hmm. I, I read about, I read the philosophers, I read the theologians, I read the, I read, you know, I read and read and read and thought and thought and thought. And finally I got to a point, I just don't believe it. I just don't think that there's a God who's, who intervenes in this world for, for the good and uh, is active in this world. Yeah. So I don't believe in a powerful, loving uh, God. Yeah. And so that's why I left Christianity. It wasn't because of the Bible. It's so interesting part. I just had this long exchange um, of emails with a guy named Philip Yancey. Yeah. He's a very well-known evangelical author. Um, yeah. and he, and he writes books like on the problem of pain or where is God when it hurts or, you know, uh, um, disappointment with God, all, all sort of centered around that question. Yeah. And, yeah. um, he's a very thoughtful guy and he had just written a memoir about his early mm. life where he grew up in crazy, batshit, crazy Southern, crazy Bible college and, um, had all just got spiritual abuse left and right. Mm. Um, yeah. And, uh, he said, I, th I think you'll relate to my story. And I read it and I was like, oh no, I grew up among the nicest, most lovely Christians. I had none of the pain that you suffered. He, he really suffered a lot. And, uh, I, you know, it's so like, I had nothing but good experiences in the church and I walked away because the, the narrative made no sense to me in light of what I was seeing in reality. Mm -hmm. You, on the other hand, grew up seeing the worst of Christianity, like, and nevertheless found a way to embrace it. And then found a way to like, found your way to like this very loving interpretation of it. And we, we were going back and forth. And I was sort of saying like, what is it that attracted you to Christianity after all, you know, after all that nonsense you've seen? Like, but, but it was interesting because he's such a, 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 he's such a great writer about sort of how pain is necessary 
and how it's all part of the plan. And, yeah, Yeah. you know, and I, I, I I just like, and, and, and sometimes if I like squint my eyes just to the left and I'm like me, and then, and then like, I see something else, some other form of suffering that has no possible meaning. And I'm just like, bullshit. I just call bullshit. Well, this, I get this one a lot in these emails that come to me that, uh, that, uh, and on my blog, people say this too, that, that the, um, you know, if there weren't suffering, you know, if we didn't have some pain, we couldn't have any pleasure. And if we didn't, if there wasn't any evil, there couldn't be any good. And, and I, you know, I agree with that on some level. I mean, I think that's how you can justify hangnails, <laughs> you know, you can, or, you know, I've had, I had hepatitis when I was a kid. Turns out to be the best thing ever happened to me. So, you know, okay. Sometimes great. it works that but way. Sometimes, it, but you know, when you're talking about Somalia uh, or you're talking about Ethiopia, and you're talking about, you know, so, you know, when you talk about massive starvation that's still occurring in this world today, talk about birth defects, where people, I mean, there is some, there, there is a lot of suffering that is not, uh, that is not redemptive. There's nothing yeah, good absolutely. comes out of it, yeah. and the only way to get around it is to say, well, it'd be better in the by and by. And, you know, God will, God will help them out. But then you actually, it's really interesting with evangelical Christians, uh, or with, um, or with Muslims. I had a debate about this with a Muslim on a remote debate a year or so ago, uh, where he said that, uh, you know, that suffering isn't a problem because, you know, God will, you know, the, the girl who's screaming to death with pain and then dies, it'll be okay because God will take care of her in the afterlife. And I asked him, I said, well, what if the girl's not a Muslim? He said, well, then she'll go to the fires of hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, so that's your solution to suffering is that you you scream to death now so that you can be eternally in the flames of hell, huh? That's an interesting explanation for suffering. Yeah, eternal <laughs> eternal conscious torment is just the, the most bizarre idea of them all. Um, but to, but then so to say so it isn't going to be okay in the by and by yeah. by that by that very theory. And but so that I just, pain, you, you do understand, Bart, that that suffering, you know, why that suffering is necessary because if that yes. didn't exist we would not fully appreciate the glory to which we are headed. I know. Well, that's the book of Revelation, let me tell you. You know, I had a debate with uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, on uh, the problem of suffering. And it was the only debate we ever did. <laughs> he got really under, he was really upset with really? me at one point. Yeah, yeah, because I kept saying things. Look, there's one, in, in our world today, one, there's, there's a child who starves to death every eight seconds. Uh, and I, I rattled off these statistics back then. It was 300 people die a day of malaria. And I, I just went through a bunch of statistics. And I said, I don't see how you can say that there's a loving God in charge of these people's lives. These people are desperate for help. They pray for help. They plead for help. They get nothing. They die in pain. It's very easy for those of us who are middle class, uh, you know, uh, why, well, he's not a middle class white guy in America, but he's a middle class white guy in England. And it's like, you know, it's very easy for us, but, you know, we're not starving to death and watching our children starve to death. And so he got really pissed off at me. He said, Bart, I don't know why you're throwing suffering in my face the whole time. <laughs> Tom... This debate is about why they're suffering. <laughs> if you don't want to face up to the realities of suffering, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because I, I do, I do often hear people say about you that they think like, uh, you know, it, it, it's the Bible. It, he couldn't get over the Bible. 
And no, and I just think like the, not true. That, that's not where it, that's not where it is. It's not no, where it is. No. I mean, I wrote a you know I wrote a book on this suffering issue, and it, I tried to explain it there. But the thing is, people just don't believe. I guess the weirdest thing. I have scholar friends who've written books claim in print claiming that the reason I became a uh, an agnostic is because I realized that scribes changed their manuscripts of the New Testament. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? I knew that one as a fundamentalist. <laughs> what? Put it in. I call this guy. I'm not going to name his name. I call. I said, what? What are you talking about? That's not true. All he had to do is ask me. Oh, really? I didn't. know. I thought you did. <laughs> so, so I, I, I'm going to let you go. But, but I know you're teaching these classes online, and people sometimes say to me, "Hey, you should." Like I, I can't teach scholarly classes online, but like I can teach practical stuff, like how to make friends. Like they're always like, you know, because like I'm good at that. Um, so you, 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 they're like, you should teach stuff online and on the classes. Like, what's your experience been with that? Like, are, is that something that you're really excited about? Yeah. So I just started this about a year ago, and so you know, I've had I've had my blog for a long time, and my blog my blog raises money for charity. Yeah, no, it's, and it's it's huge. And it's it's actually growing. It's really quite. We're we're raising a lot of it's money. Weird, it's really it's great. weirdly it's weirdly um, amazing, isn't it? Like you're like, how would you expect it? Like a blog about kind of antique, like fr from like an antiquity guy. No, I know. Well, you know what? I apply. So this thing's been that's been going on for God, I don't know since. Not, yeah, for a long time, for 10 years, yeah. I guess. But I, when I started it, when I had to apply for tax-exempt status, they asked me, well, you, what do you expect you're going to be bringing in on this thing? I said, God, I have no idea. I said, well, maybe I'm going to do it for three years, probably bring about $7,000 a year, and then I'll re-examine it. So, all right, 10 years later, this year, we've already brought in over $420,000. Yeah, no, it's, 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 <laughs> just, it's just delightful. And I give all the money away. I don't keep a dime yeah. of it. I give it all to charities dealing with hunger and, and homeless. So I, I so I'd been doing that for a while. And, um, but then, um, somebody on the couple of people on the blog said, you know, you could kind of do other things too, you know, because you got. And so I thought, well, I'll do some things that aren't connected with the blog. And uh, so I started this thing called the Barterman and Professional Services, where I do these online courses. And um, uh, and you know, people people pay for a ticket. It's like going to a lecture yeah. or something. And I, so I'm doing one in a week and a half actually called Finding Moses, and it's about uh, it's about the uh, the narratives of Moses and the Pentateuch, and about you know, did the Exodus happen? And what about you know, what, how do we understand the law of the Jews? And wh what's that all about? Why are these Jews so legalistic? You know, and and uh, what what are these stories trying to convey? What are they trying? To so it's about you know, it's about that. So. I do these things. And I do them. Um, I do them remotely, um, and people can come to them. Uh, and if they don't come, they can buy the lectures without coming to them. And uh, I think it's a great uh, it's a great thing because you can reach so many people that you couldn't reach. How many people show up? Um, well, for this last one, I think about a thousand people paid for it Holy or so. And, and and is it and you do it live? I do it live, and you don't have to come. People pay for it and don't then come. But then, you know, I have I have hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of people come. And the thing is that it's, um, you know, before COVID, none of us thought about doing this kind of thing. That's crazy. You know, I would give lectures at the Smithsonian every year, and you know, there'd be a couple hundred people there, and I'd be there for two days and three three nights or something, and you know, and then I'd come home. And this thing, you know, I spend a Saturday in my living room. <laughs> I'd get you know a thousand people. It's like you can if you're interested in reaching people. Oh my god! So is it, you should definitely do this. <laughs> is it a one day course? 
Is it like? Or- well, so it depends what it is. So I'm doing this one that's coming up is a two day course. I'm giving four lectures a day with Q and A uh, on this on this issue about you know how these this found these foundational stories of ancient Judaism, which are the foundation stories of Christianity, the Exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law, you know, the taking over Canaan, that kind of stuff. Um, so we'll do four lectures on Saturday and four on Sunday with Q and A after each one. And, and you'll do them a few, live. Like you'll do four lectures. Yeah. Like that sounds exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're short lectures they're 30 to 35 minutes, but they emotionally it's extremely exhausting because oh, it's very focused. Yeah. But then the next, uh, I had to delay those because when my mom died, I was going to be doing them a few weeks ago and I had to delay them. Uh, so, but then the next, like on the next Tuesday on the 14th, I'm doing a, a one-off lecture, uh, uh, public lecture, same kind of deal where people come and, uh, but it's on other virgin births in antiquity. And so going into the Christmas season, you know, was Jesus yeah. the only, you, you go on the internet, you see, read about all these people who were born of virgins. And uh, most people saying this have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and so, uh, so I got to deal with that in a lecture. So, and so these things are, yeah, they're great. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I will, I, I will maybe check out the virgin one. And you know, before I thank you, I want to tell you that like they're releasing this podcast after Christmas, but you and I just had since like, let's be honest, we recorded this before Christmas and we just had this like, I thought truly humane and delightful conversation about Christmas. And so after the podcast is over and they do all the outro stuff, if you guys stick around, I'm going to make John Wright stick back in the Christmas part of this thing and you'll get a take on Christmas that will be helpful for you perhaps for next year. But for this year, Bart, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. This is really, it's really great. Really great talking, having a nice, uh, it's a heart to heart talk and also dealing with intellectual stuff, which I like and like, uh, issues is really good. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate what you're doing because I, I get people tell me that uh, they've talked with you and it's made a huge difference in their lives. Oh man. That's, that's, that's kind of what we want to hear, right? Like uh, we're yeah. doing something that makes a yeah. difference. So listen, yeah. I'll steer all my people over to the, to the blog to check it out. Cause like they love, they do find such good stuff there. Um, and, I'll, and, and we'll, and we'll talk again. We'll talk again. Okay. Thanks brother. You will. Yep. All right. Great. Thank you. All right, so that was it. That was me and Bart Ehrman talking about all that stuff and especially talking about the Bible. I, I hope you liked it. Um, I was thinking about how I would close out this, uh, this episode and I was, I was thinking about Robert Ingersoll. My, my, you know, remember when I used to do Ingersoll quotes after every episode? Um, but, and I don't do that anymore, but boy, you know, Robert Ingersoll had some cool quotes about the Bible. And so I just, I just pulled a random Robert Ingersoll quote from 1894. And I think Bart Ehrman would like this. I hope you like it. It's a real simple one. He goes, somebody ought to tell the truth about the Bible. The preachers dare not because they would be driven from their pulpits. Professors in colleges dare not because they would lose their salaries. Politicians dare not. They would be defeated. Editors dare not. They would lose subscribers. Merchants dare not, because they might lose customers. Men of fashion dare not, fearing they would lose caste. Even clerks dare not, because they might be fired.
And so I thought I would do it myself. There are many millions of people who believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. Millions who think that this book is staff and guide, counselor and consoler, that it fills the present with peace and the future with hope. Millions who believe it is the fountain of law, justice, and mercy, and that to its wise and benign teachings, the world is indeed indebted for its liberty, wealth, and civilization. Millions who imagine that this book is a revelation from the wisdom and love of God to the brain and heart of man. Millions who regard this book as a torch that conquers the darkness of death and pours its radiance on another world, a world without a tear. They forget its ignorance and savagery, its hatred of liberty, its religious persecution. They remember heaven, but they forget the dungeon of eternal pain. They forget that it imprisons the brain and corrupts the heart. They forget that it is the enemy of intellectual freedom. Liberty is my religion. Liberty of hand and brain, of thought and labor. Liberty is a word hated by kings, loathed by popes. It is a word that shatters thrones and altars, that leaves the crowned without subjects and the outstretched hand of superstition without alms. Liberty is the blossom and fruit of justice, the perfume of mercy. Liberty is the seed and soil, the air and light, the dew and rain of progress, love, and joy. There you go. That's Ingersoll. And you know, I'm so inspired by Ingersoll that I'm thinking of starting a university dedicated to these noble ideas. And I think I'll call it Liberty University. Yeah. Yeah, think about that. And we'll see you next time on Humanism. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live all you ever wanted. Last night, my wife wakes me up at four o'clock in the morning because she can't sleep. And she's an insomniac, so this happens. And she's like, I think we should just turn on the lights and pretend it's morning. So, so we're laying there talking. And I said, what are you thinking about? And she said, I'm thinking about your terrible attitude about Christmas and how you've ruined Christmas for me. <laughs> and we ended up having a pretty significant conversation because I, I, really? I hate Christmas. Really? hate it. Oh, really? Can't stand it. Oh. Can't stand it. Ah, I have all sorts really? of issues. And she was like, you uh, ruin it for everyone. 
and uh-huh. and I used to love it, and now I, I it's yeah. all, and I, and, she, and I was like, I I know, like I I need to find a way to hide it, but I'm not good at hiding my emotions. And she's like, I want you to really dig deep. Like, where the hell does this come from? Like, what's up with you? Yeah, yeah. And like, it it has layers. Like, it has so many layers yeah, for yeah. me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was raised in a kind of Christianity that was like, we should give to the poor. And so the idea of like yeah. all the economic excess. Uh-huh, and then right. I lived in the ghetto for 20 years and I watched people in poverty be pressured into Christmas spending they couldn't afford that would drive them. Yes. So I hated it for yes. that. And then like when I was growing up, my, de- my my own family of origin had some weird Christmas stuff going on around it where my dad mm-hmm. who would work 364 days a, a year would take Christmas off and he would get sick. And he, you know, he was always sick on Christmas mm-hmm. because like his body would sort of let down. And so Christmas was like, I just have like yeah. 87 reasons why I hate Christmas and, yeah. Yeah. and, and I'm a counselor and there's all this suffering. Like I have a lot of people that I care about that are lonely and sad. And Christmas is just a time of incredible suffering for people that are alone yeah. um, and mentally ill. And so like, I it just, I hate it so many ways to Sunday that like, if you, the first time I see the wreath at target before Thanksgiving, I just want to punch somebody in the face. And um, so I'm, I'm going out on this. And I realized that the other reason I hate it is because I spent 40 years as 40 some years as an evangelical Christian and every year the season would come around and I had to once again proclaim and, and act as though it was very significant that, that this actually happened, that a virgin had a child who later would die and save the entire world. And like, it's the, it's the most distilled moment where we go like, this really happened and it really matters if you're in the evangelical world. And that was like, I had a hard time being a supernaturalist the whole time I was a Christian. I love the community. I love the ethic, but like I hated the supernatural stuff because it never, it was always hard to swallow. And so the idea that like, this was the, I realized like this was the moment of, of each year of being a Christian that was the most like absurd and cognitively dissonant for me. And I just have a lot of, a lot of angst built up around that holiday. And so it's just interesting when you're like, yeah, the virgin birth. And the, there are lots of virgin births out there. And they're like, I, and they probably f- screwed up a bunch of other people just like they screwed up me. Um, so, <laughs> Well, no, it is. Christmas is a, I mean, it's a fraught holiday sure because the, you know, my, uh, my wife had, um, is, has never been terribly fond of Christmas either. And she was raised in a non, non religious home, but you know, there's so much expectation placed on the day yeah. and, uh, and that families, it just creates huge, can create so much pain, huge family tensions. I, I get all that. I, when I was growing up, it was always a very happy holiday. Um, and I, um, and today I, you know, obviously I don't believe, um, in the, I don't believe the story is historically correct at all. Um, but for me, um, the myth of Christmas is meaningful. And I just think it's a lovely story about a child coming into the world, you know, and sacrificing to do that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of, I just a sentimentalist at heart. I mean, like things like little drummer boy really gets to me. <laughs> Give everything I have. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's the thing. That, what, what Marty was saying. That's what Marty was saying to me last night. She's like, you know what? For a lot of people, there's a lot of like. I know there's all that suffering, and she's like, and you're hating Christmas doesn't do one thing to relieve anybody's suffering. Ah, she's like, it doesn't. Wise wife. Doesn't help anybody. Yeah. But she said, yeah. 
but for a lot of people, there are joyful moments around there, like the the little drummer boy thing that my mother-in-law loved yeah. to. And she's like, and you pissing on it, it doesn't help yeah. anybody, but it does hurt some people. And, uh, yeah. and she's like, I, I really want you to try to figure out a way to stop doing it. And I'm really, yeah, I'm, well, I'm wrestling with that right now. Well, it's, it's, you know, look, you're a counselor, so, you know, you need, I mean, it, it takes discuss, talking with people who can kind of work through it with you because it's like love. You can't order somebody to love somebody, right? You can't, you can't order, you can't command an emotion. You can command actions. Yeah. Um, but you know, you are who you are and you feel what you, and most people who really hate Christmas, and there are a lot of people who won't even admit they do, but they do. Uh, they have, they really have, they hate it for good reason. They're almost always historical, historical reasons, almost always. Yeah. And so I think what, what I'm, what I'm trying to do and like talking to you even like is helpful. I was like, like, I realized like, I, I love Marty and, and she loves Christmas. And so like, I got to love, you know, I got to love Christmas for her. And like, I go like, you know, I love Bart and Bart loves the little drummer boy. And so, you know what? Like, I, like I've got to find a way to channel, like, to go, like, there are people that love this, that I love. And I like, I need to love it for their sake, even though I can't love it for my own sake. Yes. I mean, I think for, in my case, I hate most of I hate most of what happens. I mean, the and now you said Thanksgiving when the wreath comes out. I mean, around here it starts yeah, coming out Halloween. It's like, oh God, please! And I, you know, I hate the commercials. I hate the spending on it. I hate the I hate the obligation to be giving gifts to every. You know, I I don't like I I don't like all that. But what I, in my case I. I sometimes just calm down and think about what I think is lovely about the message. And, um, uh, it's so funny because I think it's a much lovelier message than good Friday. Yeah. Well, where, you know, not hard. God has to torture, yeah. God has to torture his son to death to bring us salvation. I just don't like well, that. It's message funny. Just all, the, but, even the way you articulated it, Bart, is like, you're like, I just love the story. Like, you know, a, ch- a child comes into the world and the sacrifice that, people put forth to make that happen. I go like, Oh yeah. Like it could be any child. Like, you know, like, like you're not like a savior that you're just like a child comes into the world. Like there's promise there, right? There's hope there. Every time a child is born. Yeah. My, my, what, what does it for me is the idea that somebody chose to come into the world to help others. Ah, yeah. That is, Uh, you know, that, that somebody decided to give up everything for the sake of, to come and help us and so and i just you know i think it's a myth i don't right, think it's right. true but it's a, nice it's a lovely myth I've, uh, except you know it has very bad oh god the whole, no the whole thing is fraught i mean including you know uh in the biblical account of course since this baby comes into the world herod sends the troops out and kills every boy in bethlehem two years and I under guess. huh did that have to happen yeah, do you have to put <laughs> that in your myth and, 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 really come on why is it, and you know and even the virgin that? thing i go like really did you have to slut shame again like like it, you know like if you 
if you've had sex, it's a bad thing. (laughs) You know, like, like, you know, so. Yeah. See, I don't think, you know, it became, it certainly became that it absolutely, oh boy, so much so that she becomes a perpetual virgin, of course. And then her, and then it turns out that Joseph also is a virgin for his whole in the medieval. So it's like, okay, yeah, 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 fine. But, you know, so actually part of what I'm going to talk about is why they go with a virgin, because I don't think it's because of slut shaming in the original traditions. Uh, I also, I, I'm not convinced there were other virgin births in the ancient world. Uh, and so I'm going to- You think this might be, an, you, might, you think this might be an original? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, no. I, then, then it's easy to, it's easy to know how to end this podcast conversation just to go like, Bart, like this is me from the bottom of my heart, really trying, going like, have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I mean it. I mean it. Well, thank you. Well, I, look, I hope you enjoy it. As you, I hope you find a way to do yeah. it because it's, um, it's, it can be gut wrenching for people who hate Christmas. It's just leading up to it the day. So if you find something in it to grasp, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, I'm grasp go- your wife. I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs>